following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing today to study in the letter of Philippians, on this Communion Sunday we come to the latter part of Philippians chapter 2. It's interesting to observe in some chapters of God's Word, and this chapter is a great example, how we can have material that we would say is doctrinally loaded and heavy, and that would certainly characterize the first part of this chapter. Some people would look at the latter part from verse 19 to 30 and say, well, this is just Paul discussing his helpers in the ministry and travels that are going to happen, and this doesn't seem to be quite so much meat on the bone, maybe, as we have in the earlier portions. But I would ask you to look for the way in which what he is saying in these discussions about Timothy and his friend Epaphroditus are very much consistent with the doctrinal lessons that have been taught already. Now, I'm, I'm really going to start speaking uh, in the middle of a sentence as uh, about in, in the middle of verse 16, because that's where I cut off last time. So let me take a running start with verse 14 and read through the end of Philippians 2. This is God's holy word, so listen to it and hear his voice. Therefore, my... I'm sorry... 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Christ Jesus." But you know that Timothy proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things will go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I do think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was. He was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, 
You may be glad and have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. This is God's own word. If you worked in industrial sales at some large company and experienced what some have in our recessionary economy the last couple of years, you could have the experience I've heard about from others where maybe 40% of your sales force got laid off. And you were thankful to be one who was spared. You were among the 60% that stayed. But you might not have been so thankful if it happened, as I've heard it has, at the next sales meeting that the president of the company came in and said, now, folks, let's talk about sales goals. You know that before you were each asked to, to be responsible for, and we expected you to, to meet the goal of selling at least a million dollars of our inventory in your sales year. Now, there are less of you, and we've got to do more next year. So your new sales goal is $2.5 million. You might think, I'm happy to have a job, but I'm not so sure I'm happy to have this job, where suddenly I'm expected to do so much more than I was before. And you might join people in crying out and saying, why, that's absolutely unfair. The expectations are way too high. How can I more than double what I'm being asked to do? Well, there actually are people who respond to the claims of the Christian life somewhat like that. They say that the Bible appears to expect things of every Christian. We can't earn our salvation. It's by grace, but then we're expected to respond to Christ. We're to work out this salvation that God has worked in us through Christ. And when we see the things the Bible asks a Christian to do, there are those who say, it's too demanding. It's completely unrealistic. It's way over my head. I can't do it. But maybe they forget the whole concept that when you call Jesus your Lord, you are granting him the position of a sovereign ruler. And while it might sound like a negative thing to call Christ, it's the same as almost as a totalitarian dictator. Jesus doesn't rule by your vote as to what your life should be, or how you should act. It's His vote that matters. And so your use of time, the things you prioritize, your loyalties, your code of conduct, your language, how you spend your money, everything suddenly is under His rule. Really, becoming a Christian isn't too different than joining the U.S. Army. I don't know if too many army recruits who would tell right home and say to mom, gee, it's great here. I, I can get up whenever I want to. I can work when I feel like it. Uh, it's just great. It isn't like that, is it? Someone else determines the schedule. Someone else sets the standard. Someone else is ruling almost your every moment. And when you search the New Testament Scriptures, you find a similar transforming effect in the lives of people who came to know Christ and call Him their Lord. Their lives were changed by high standards and new things, new interests, new loves. As Jesus spoke about taking up your cross and following me, people found He expected a lot. And there are some who would say, 
he expects too much. It's unreasonable. Well, Philippians 2 has given us this splendid picture that we've been looking at and even glancing back at once we had considered it in the picture of Christ in 6 through 11 of this chapter, this magnificent portrait of him condescending from the glory of heaven to the lowliness and agony of the cross and then being restored again to the height of heavenly glory and and lordship there. And we see what Christ has done. He was the master servant, and he's held up as the example to follow. And we might ask ourselves, what a standard. How can I possibly ever, ever be expected to do anything like Christ and, and all that he was? Well, once again, I bring in a rather famous quote from one of the most famous Christians of all time, Augustine, from the fifth century. Augustine was wise about so many things. He had a little prayer that is probably one of the most memorable things that has survived of his many writings. When Augustine caught the right idea and said, Lord, command of me whatever you will, but enable everything that you command. Do you see the wonder of that? He said, I serve a high master, a Lord, who is going to command difficult things of me. And I want to do those things, but I must say to him, give me the ability, for I don't have it within myself to do what you ask. That's exactly what Paul has been talking about here, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God has worked it in you through Jesus Christ. And so as we see the Lord who poured himself out in obedient service, we now face the challenge of being poured out in discipleship and obedience and humble servanthood before him. And if you think the goal, the standard is set way too high, the bar is too far up there, let me show you that the remainder of this text in the second half of the chapter will quickly show us three personalities, three human beings who weren't so different than you and I, who did strive to follow that example by God's grace at work in them. That spotlight is on Paul himself, starting in verse 16, on Timothy, starting in verse 19, and on Epaphroditus in 25. And quickly, this morning, I want to see each of these and how they illustrate Christian discipleship that is swept up in an all-consuming cause, that is concerned for others to meet Christ, and that perseveres against all obstacles. Now, Paul was pointing first to himself here, talking about his own possible death. What would he say if his life was to end soon and he had to stand before the Lord as judge He says, I would be glad, I would rejoice that my life had been poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice because you are the sacrifice and I will have you to show to my God that his grace working through me has brought you to meet Christ. In other words, I'm saying Paul shows the need here for every disciple of Jesus to be poured out in an all-consuming cause that is larger than ourselves. Notice the phrase in verse 16. I didn't get to mention it last time. I I really almost stopped last week's message at the end of 15, which is the middle of a sentence. There's no period at the end of 
verse 15, but I stopped there. You shine like stars in the universe, and I might have been saying period, but that's not what the text says. You shine like stars in the universe, you disciples, as you hold out the word of life. One of you mentioned to me in the gathering space very perceptively, said, Pastor, you didn't mention the word of life. That's very important. I said, let me get there. I'm, I'm going to get there, I hope. We shine like stars among the dark generation that we live in. Why? Because the word of life, God's own word, the gospel that brings people to life is in us. It has transformed us. It has changed us. And we are made into vessels that carry this word for others to hear and see and respond and receive life. The very word of God, we, we find, is not just an inspiring book of human literature. It's more like something radioactive. You take it into yourself, you handle it, and it changes you. It affects you in the deepest ways in the very core of your being. It has power. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, 29, says from the Lord, Is not my word like a hammer? that breaks rocks in pieces? Isn't it a great power, God is saying? His Word is what transforms us from living in the darkness, in the kingdom of Satan, to be in the light of God and the truth of God and to come alive and so to demonstrate the potency of that Word for other people. Just think about what it is to to have that which can spring into new life. I became a happy homeowner this past week in one respect that I wasn't happy all summer long. I think it was sometime in early June that I was last happy with my lawn. And you're probably like me. Now, it isn't just the terrible drought we had and the high heat. You know, that's okay when a lawn just goes uniformly brown because you know it's always going to come back again. But when it does what my lawn did, and possibly yours, getting the lawn blight, as they call it this year, with great big patches that are nothing but bare ground among the brown, you you know there's something really wrong. It sort of looks like lawn leprosy in my yard this year. And what can I do? I looked at it all summer long. This is horrible. It just looks terrible. Well, I consulted some folks, and they came and reseeded. They did that all... September 13th. And when the guy was doing it, I was saying, boy, it's really dry. How can, how can putting seed on the lawn on this terribly dry day, look at the soils just like dust. He said, well, you, you water it. You be faithful. But he said, it'll grow. It'll grow. Just kind of trust me, you know. The expert knew. And I watered and I watered. I was faithful for a week or 10 days. Nothing was happening. And then we got the deluges. Now, those deluges caused some problems, but I was happy for them. You should see my lawn. Does it ever look good? It is green all over. I mowed. I was a happy clam mowing yesterday. Isn't that funny? We wanted to grow so we can cut it down again. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but new life. That grass seed scattered when it was so dry has sprung to life. And it has had a transforming difference. That's what the Word of God does. It brings life to people. The very Word that God speaks when He tells us about Christ and His righteousness and His sacrifice for us and His resurrection for us, it has power 
to germinate and change in a human life, changing people and turning them 180 degrees around. Paul here talks about himself as a man committed to that holding out the word of life in such a way that he uses this image of being poured out, he says, like a drink offering. This is what the priest of Israel did at the end of many sacrifices. The sacrifice would be burning, the animal would be burning on the altar, and the priest would come with a cup of wine and pour it out as a sort of coup de grace to the sacrifice. The wine would flash up and burn, and it was done. Paul said, that's what my life is like. Something happily poured out, fully consumed by this wonderful endeavor of making known the word of life because God has put it in me, changed me, and enabled me to pass it on to you. It seems he's saying that a life governed by Christ has to be a life surrendered to Christ and consumed by Christ. So that Paul knew he would stand at the last day before the judgment seat, and maybe it was soon. He wasn't sure. He's still waiting for that trial verdict. But he said, if I have to tell the Lord, Lord, all I accomplished was the pouring out of my life on those people in Philippi. Look, look what you did there. You did it, but I'm thankful to have been your cup of wine that you poured out there and accomplished something great for your glory. We need to consider what it means to be poured out in the all-consuming cause of Christ. But then there's a second human vessel talked about here as an example, and that, of course, is Timothy. You've all heard of Timothy, the younger disciple who was like a son to Paul, not literally, but Paul didn't have children as far as we know, but he considered Timothy to be like his son, trained him, mentored him, was proud of him. And he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you soon when the trial verdict is known. In other words, Timothy's apparently going to go out on a mission trip and tell all the churches what the trial verdict was about Paul as soon as it's known. And he says, when he comes, I want you to know he's going to take a genuine interest in you. He's unique that way. He is very interested in you and in the things of Christ. Timothy, to us, exemplifies as a second point, being truly concerned for others to encounter Christ. I have nobody else like him. His interest this way is unique. Paul, remember, in chapter 1, verse 15, said, you know, there are folks around who preach Christ. Their doctrine would make Christ known, but what's their motive? It's envy. It's rivalry. They're trying to build up themselves or or make a following for themselves. One of the shocking things that some people discover as they come into the Christian faith, whether as a lay person serving in some ministry or, or maybe as an elder or pastor, is that people can do ministry and be interested in the things of Christ, formally speaking, when the motive really is themselves. I have the opportunity to interact with quite a few seminary students, both as a trustee of a seminary and a candidate's committee chairman of our presbytery, I see a lot of young men coming along, and they consider me the old, old guy now who's supposed to know the answers, and I try to tell them I'm still learning the answers. But I hear these young men, and it's, it's interesting, as they start out in seminary, many of them will say, oh, I just love to study the Bible. Oh, it's, man, I can read Greek now, and isn't it great to be able to study the Bible? And theological discussion, I just love theological discussion. 
I just love to get into it with somebody and, you know, engage in this. It's, it's fantastic. Well, that's good, and that's a good hunger. But I hope they're going to make another step at some point, and I've often reminded them about this and said, look, you know, this intellectual interest you have is a great thing. It's a good hunger. But you're going to have to get to another stage. And that is the stage where you understand that you're going to be called to be a pastor. And that means not just being a scholar who loves theological discourse, but being more like a medic on a battlefield, called to take the words of life and apply them to the bleeding wounds and the broken bones of people crushed by living in this dark world we have today. A pastor, for example, can't afford to be a monk isolated in his study. He's a shepherd of souls, or he isn't a pastor. Now, in our human nature, you see, we don't necessarily care that much about the other people. And we might say, well, the thing I love is, is just the concepts, the principles, the, the great design of it all. I love to learn what God's Word has to say. And we don't even think that it's all for some human end of serving other people. We say, oh, well, you know, I'll get involved where I have to, but people's lives are messy. I just don't want to get into them too much. We're all like that. We don't start out with a love of other people and their problems. Perhaps what we need to do is pray and ask God to get us engaged and let our interest in the truth of the gospel and the knowledge of Christ that we have be applied like a salve and like a bandage to those broken lives. There's a very simplistic little theme that's taught in Sunday school to children. I actually asked our children's director if they still teach this, as they did to me 50 years ago. She said, yes, we do. It's the word joy, a word that, remember, what's Philippians about? Authentic joy in Christ. The word is mentioned repeatedly. And you know what they taught you in Sunday school. Many of you know what I'm going to say. What is joy in Christ? It's Jesus and others and you in that order. Now, I would say the word we spell is a completely different word because the word we spell is you and Jesus and others. And, and that just doesn't work out, does it? It doesn't spell anything. But that simple little epigram for children tells us that we will experience the joy of Christ when we're being poured into other lives, making this word of life known to them and taking a real interest in that other life. Thirdly, Philippians shows us this third person who is an example of, of God in showing us the standard of what a disciple is. He's not famous. His name's not easy to pronounce. You can't even shorten. I tried to figure out what would you call Epaphroditus if you wanted a nickname. I don't know how you'd shorten that. Maybe Ditus or something like that. I don't know what his mom called him. But Here's a man who wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a vessel of divine revelation. There's no letter of Epaphroditus in the New Testament. This guy was a layman. He might have been a deacon. I don't know because he was doing diaconal work. And remember what it was all about. We met him when we talked about the very first chapter because he was the messenger who came from Philippi 
inquiring about Paul, apparently bringing a monetary gift. I'm sure it was a purse full of coins in those days. He had no checks or anything, so he had to carry the the gift, the offering. He was trusted with that. He had to undertake a difficult journey to travel a long ways over land and sea to get to Paul. And Paul says when he got there, for some reason, he became very sick and he almost died. He could have been a lot of things that happened to him. Malaria, dysentery, diphtheria, all kinds of things we don't think about anymore can happen to people who traveled in those days. And because of his efforts to help Paul, he nearly died. Now, what is this model here? Well, it seems like Paul is praising Epaphroditus for persevering in gospel work against all obstacles and at great personal cost. And Paul says, I want you to honor this man. You need to honor people who do this. You need to honor these long-distance runners of the Christian faith who aren't just sprinters. They undertake a task, and they follow through at all costs. Paul calls Epaphroditus my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. If you're a worker and a soldier, that tells you that the ministry of Christ, being a disciple of Christ, is real work, and it's a battle. And Epaphroditus was faithful in both of those ways. In Revelation chapter 2, the Lord Jesus praises his church on earth, and he says there, among other things, he praises those who have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Long-distance running was always beyond my fathoming when I was in school. I was actually okay once upon a time many pounds ago at running short distances. I could do okay in gym at the 100-yard dash. But I, I looked in awe at these lean, willowy fellows who could take off and run for miles through woods and streams and roads and just keep going and going and marathons today. Never could do anything like that. But that's what we need to be in the kingdom of Christ. We need to understand that in obeying him, there are going to come times when there's a great discouragement or a great difficulty, or we're going to be knocked down flat. We're going to trip and fall on our faces, and we get up again. And the apostle says, honor people like that, people who persevere in this all-consuming task. These people we see were swept up in a cause, the cause of Jesus Christ. And he was so great, so grand, he was everything to them. And so they were concerned that others would encounter him, and they were able to persevere against difficulties in making him known. Well, my application is very simple for you today. How do you measure up against that? Have you seen the gospel of Jesus Christ as an all-consuming cause? Literally, putting its shadow and its claim on every single aspect of your life? Do you have any zeal to see others encounter Christ? Do you pray for that zeal and say, Lord, show me the people on whom to concentrate my prayers and my interest and and to whom I'm being the most significant influence? Will you persevere against all obstacles in light of the supreme worthiness of the Lord you serve? There's a hymn writer who considered the wonder of the cross and of Jesus himself and putting the marvel of it all together as he looked at it and worshiped, he thought this as he responded. He said, here, Lord, in reaction to this, 
I give myself away. It is all that I can do. And our Father, help us to consider what we have given, what we have done, and how much we have guarded and kept and shielded, how much we have said, Jesus, you're too demanding. I can't do that. I don't have time for that. I can't get involved with that person. Consumed by who you are and what you did. Ravished by the cross. Help us, Father, to give ourselves away as these three honorable men did, Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And may it be for your glory. Amen.